Again, welcome to the fourth evening to the seventh and eighth sessions, Lord willing, of the Mid-America Evening Class on Christians Living in a Sin-Stained World as we consider some ethical questions Christians face today. If you haven't seen some of the earlier sessions, the first session dealt with moral reasoning, ingredients of that, and then also looked at uh, Christian worldview and how that plays into ethics. Our second session looked very specifically at issues surrounding human sexuality, where we looked at the topics of pornography and transgenderism. Uh, Last week, we looked at uh, questions surrounding and different models concerning uh, Christians' engagement with the world, and uh, also as part of that, looking at four different models, opting for uh, a modified sort of transformationist model or Christ as king over all of life model, uh, trying to get rid of the triumphalism that has sometimes characterized some representatives of that model. And we also looked at a recent work by Rod Dreher called The Benedict Option, in light of the growing hostility within uh, American culture and how uh, Christians might need to posture themselves relative to that. So tonight, with this final session, uh, session seven and eight, we take up truth-telling. And we're going to look at truth-telling as a way of love in Christ and then look at some other harder questions within a sin-stained world, truth-telling in an age of deceit. Shall we ask God to bless our time together? We're thankful, Lord, for the opportunity to reflect together and reflect on the principles of Scripture and different teachings we find in the Bible as it pertains to this matter of being truth-tellers as we consider how we might live in truth and our lives might be characterized by belonging to you and reflective of the love of Christ and your justice and goodness and mercy. And so, Lord, we ask that you would bless the time we spend here together and also those listening by way of of the Internet and the like. uh, Grant your blessing that your church can grow as it seeks to be salt and light in a world of darkness. We ask this all in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, first, uh, some basics here. You shall not give false testimony against your neighbor. And uh, the Reformed Protestant tradition, except for the Lutherans, we number the com- the commandments different than the Roman Catholics and the Lutherans. So if you think I'm, uh, if, you, if you come from a different tradition than, say, the Reformed tradition, uh, don't you have your numbering wrong? Well, that, that accounts for that. I just make that little... I'll sometimes read different authors, and I'm going, well, that's the wrong commandment. Oh, 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 that's right, from a different tradition. Well, let's get started here. Among the commandments of the second table of the law, bearing false witness is the sin that can do the most damage. I liken it to a pebble dropped in a pond, and it ripples out, and it's it's... Damage isn't just where the splash happened. It ripples out to other places. And let's take uh, 
a basic one, gossip, uh, even in Christian circles. And I'm going to read this part. Christian girls, or teenage girls, trying to be Christians, I guess, jealous of one another, target one of their group who is perhaps prettier and perhaps more vulnerable than the rest. Perhaps she dressed a bit too risque at a party, and now they spread a slut rumor about her. It takes off at school. Boys get wind of this and start calling her in the hopes of some cheap thrills. They, in turn, boast of sexual conquests with her. More lies, more gossip. At this point, the targeted girl is rather helpless to defend herself. Perhaps she reacts with anger. Perhaps she curls up in a shell of shame and confusion. She's shunned. She's become a pariah. She's hated and spurned, snubbed and ridiculed. She flees. She flees the school. She flees her no more friends. She flees for self-protection. But the damage is done and the damage is deep. Her self-worth is pulverized. She turns to drink to numb the pain. She also flees the faith and the Christian community as a mean, vicious collection of hypocrites. Her fragile faith bleeds out of her. The stab wounds of cruel gossip have killed her faith and her. She, the supposed fornicator in violation of the seventh commandment, is murdered by gossipers who mob together to transgress the sixth and ninth commandments. As the Heidelberg Catechism reminds us, I'm not to belittle, hate, insult, or kill my neighbor, for each of these is a form of murder, and I'm not to be party of this and others. This, of course, reflects the words of Jesus, that name-calling is a form of murder. And I am never to give false testimony against anyone, twist no one's words, not gossip or slander, nor join in condemning anyone rashly or without a hearing. On the contrary, I should do what I can to defend and advance my neighbor's honor and reputation. As the above illustrates, truth-telling is a really big deal. Now, this is a radical case where gossip goes awry, grows, balloons, and devastates. Yes, it's true, not all gossip reaches these proportions. But gossip does reach these proportions, and this isn't fantasy that I made up here. It's fact. Um, the Hebrew word for witness includes what we would call the plaintiff, the one who accuses another in court against your neighbor, just as the third commandment forbids the false oath against the Lord. So here we find, the fir for the first time, the neighbor, the fellow Israelite mentioned in these commandments. And we are told in the law that on the testimony of two or three witnesses, a man shall be put to death, but no one shall be put to death on the testimony of only one witness. The Bible has rather high standards. If this, We're dealing, your words, are they trustworthy? Your words can kill a person, literally. That doesn't mean the judge need only count noses. If a malicious witness takes the stand, it says in Deuteronomy, 
to accuse a man of, of a crime, the judge must make a thorough investigation, and if the witness proves to be a liar, I mean, that's what good judges do. Judge Judy is very good at, uh, I won't use her phrases, but very good at, uh, that doesn't make any sense, you're a lion. You know, I mean, she she's, looks through people, and judges sometimes have to make those sort of determinations. You're a liar, you give false testimony, then to do to him as he intended to do to his brother. Let it come back on him, in effect. Innocent people can be killed because of lying witnesses. We think of Naboth, when wicked Jezebel set up two scoundrels to charge him before the people, saying, Naboth has cursed both God and the king. How, do you, how does he defend himself? He's helpless. At the trial of Jesus, many false witnesses came forward, but they only agreed that he'd claimed he could destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days. So judges use their discernment, but they can act only on the evidence presented. And in court, the lies of a witness or two can, yes, utterly destroy a person. What I'm trying to simply get at here is in our lying culture, uh, we make, we're so jaded, we're so bombarded by it, we're so tired of it, whether it's advertising or the political realm or just all kinds of stuff. But the Bible, the biblical standard, doesn't make light of it, doesn't think it's harmless as such. Most of us feel the acuteness of lies when they're told by our public officials, of course, Al Franken, the comedian-turned-politician, now canceled by the Me Too movement, wrote a book some years ago against the political right. I have to admit, I was always bemused by the title. Liars and the lying lies and the lying liars who tell them. (laughs) That's pretty cool. (laughs) Liars, lies, liars, the lying liars. Well, then he followed with the book The Truth with jokes. And if you peruse these books, which you can do on Amazon, you know, open the book, it is pretty amusing, actually. Um, uh, More recently, Ron uh, Dreher has uh, written about the woke political left in his book, Live Not by Lies, a Manual for Christian Dissidents. Such books reflect why so many Americans are suspicious of all politicians with the news media coming under censure as well. If anything else, this shows that people do care about the truth, and society has a hard time being free, being happy, when lies are the order of the day. Think about what lies do to us. Political lies, business lies, sales lies, make us cynical, jaded, distant, guarded, suspicious, untrusting. My sister-in-law, when she was only like six years old, heard some advertisement on TV, and a little six-year-old goes, eh, they're just trying to trick you. <laughs> a six-year-old is catching on to, mm, I don't know about that. Right. Discernment, but jaded. Uh, lies per- paint a vision of life that doesn't comport with reality. Of course, we know the famous text from James, a lying tongue isn't a harmless thing, but sets forests ablaze. Politicians lie for 
political advantage. We expect it. Uh, they tell lies that are also called high-minded lies for the good of the country. They know better than you what's good for you, and so they lie to you. Even consistories sometimes will lie about a problem with the pastor to keep the congregation from the scandal unfolding behind the scenes. I've known of such cases where they stretch the truth or tell part of a truth, but it's not the truth. And somebody's head rolls as a result. They regard their deception as high-minded for the good of the church. Believers are always mistaken when they put their trust or stake their hope on mortal man. And that can be princes, presidents, prime ministers. It can also be preachers or elders. Well, a common definition, what about this thing, lying? A common definition is to call it, is uh, to regard it as a conspicuous discrepancy between thought and speech. It's, it's a statement that's intentionally false. So it's not an unintentional error. Uh, lies aim to deceive on purpose, intentionally. And that can be to gain advantage, that can be to protect yourself, to protect others from lies. But I raised the question already here, so I'm showing my hand a little bit, is that an adequate definition? And I'll later argue it's not. What is it to live in the truth is a different sort of question. Humans, all of them, are inclined to lie. God, we know, hates deceit. His truthfulness distinguishes us. God's not like a man that he should lie. Among the six things he hates, seven that are detestable, among them are a lying tongue, a heart that devises wicked schemes, a false witness who pours out lies. Interesting. God hypes this one up quite a bit. In biblical languages, truth means reliability. Bible translations in nearly all languages adopt the word amin, amen, amen, a Hebrew term for truth, truly. God and God's words are reliable. His promises, why can you depend upon them? And should you? Because... He speaks the truth. But we're unreliable. We even make promises and even vowed promises, but we're still not reliable. We enter into covenants and contracts, and we're still not reliable. I promise to be there, but we're not capable always of fulfilling a promise. So reliability versus mere intentionality captures features of truth-telling that are vital with a walk with God and with each other. We also discover, when we start looking at this topic, that lies and even truth, as we'll see in a bit, can be instruments of the devil, devices of the devil. Lying and deceit are devices he, the devil uses, the catechism, the Heidelberg tells us. They're tools from his workshop. Jesus said there's no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks his native language. The last book of the Bible, the Apocalypse, 
There we find the devil as the dragon, and he has two beasts working for him. The beast from the sea and the one from the earth. One more political, brutal, blasphemous, the other more religious, cultural, taking on the role of prophet. But they do their harm with their mouths, or most their harm with their mouths. The beast from the sea was given a mouth to utter proud words and blasphemies to exercise his authority. The beast from the earth is is deception personified. Looks like a lamb, speaks like a dragon, and deceives the earth's inhabitants. The beastly deception is very real today. Our whole culture is not interested in truth, but it prefers perception, not substance, appearance, not character, but image. Um, A culture occupied with fads and fake values and the like. And the seemingly miraculous technical power that's transmitted, that transmits messages in the service of the beast is something reflected in the book of Revelation Over against that, in contrast, if you will, radical contrast, is living in the truth, being in the truth. Truth, like the light of day, frees us from the distortion of darkness. Uh, The beast in the realm of darkness, where we're subject to being terribly cynical, believing nothing, or terribly credulous, (laughs) believing everything. Um... To be in the truth is something much larger than than having good discernment about the accuracy of someone's words. To be in the truth is to be in Christ, to be in his light, and to be seeking his way, his kingdom come, his will being done. That's a bigger, broader picture than uh, doing good addition and letting your words just be accurate. Someone can have a great deal of character and be very accurate, yet be walking in darkness, and their life is in darkness, and their life is on the pathway of the lie. So there's something bigger, broader here. So in Christ, we become children of the truth. God's people know the truth in that sense, the the truth of God, the truth of what's wrong with us, the truth of the divine answer in Christ Jesus, Uh, the light of truth that enlightens us to seek life outside of ourselves and in him, for example. And we're called to remain in the truth. We're called to speak the truth to each other, to render true sound judgment in our courts, so that in the Old Testament, to walk in the truth had social repercussions. It spilled out into business life. It spilled out in the courts. It spilled out in how you handled the orphan and the widow. We need to get away from this allergy that our faith must be boxed up in church, but it doesn't spill out into life. Indeed, it needs to spill out. And, in fact, I think most of us sense something that we want justice out in the streets. We want good order. We want, we want uh, what is right to prevail. We really don't want to see people starving and broken and murdered. We want 
order and peace and justice. But see, this is all about truth also, and truth and sound judgment in the courts. In both these instances, the Bible is concerned to have us behave truthfully uh, to other members of his people, to those who are part of this. And then the ninth commandment itself says you shall not give testimony against your neighbor. Again, the original setting is the high standard of testimony in a court where it can do, lying does the most damage. No false testimony. Tell the truth. And our neighbor, our brother, is in the Old Testament setting, one and the same thing, pretty much, your people. And if you ask the question, who else is my neighbor besides my church buddies, uh, Jesus taught you that one by a bad Samaritan. That's the role he plays there. Good priest, good priest, holy Levite, good guys, clergy, you know, the religious types, Samaritan, and he's the neighbor. He's the neighbor who walks in truth, a loving neighbor, an unknown. Well, the catechism doesn't restrict our obligation to be truthful. Um, it's not restrictive. God's will is that I never give false testimony against anyone, that I twist no one's words that I not join in condemning anyone. Um, as soon as the gossip rumor flies against this young lady, uh, if you're living out this, well, who said that? What did that mean? You're condemning her. How do you know it's true? Why should you believe that? Have you talked to her? See? But if we don't reel in gossip, and participate and almost take a kind of <laughs> joy in seeing someone else put through the paces and a life destroyed, uh, it does a great deal of damage indeed. In all of this, we face some conundrums, if I may put it that way. Saints have stretched the truth or tricked their opponents or even, if I may, told lies. The Hebrew pro-lifers, Shephra and Pua, told Pharaoh a story about the vigor of Jewish women in delivering babies, but God was kind to these women. Other women who lied to their enemies were loved by the Lord, uh, among them Rahab, who said the spies weren't with her, though she had hidden them under the stalks of flax, the wife of the man from Bahurim, who hid David's servants in the well and told Absalom's men they crossed over the brook. These stories, together with Elijah's lie, it certainly it seems to be that to me. I've heard wild evasions of it, but I'm not convinced. David's fib, retold by his friend Jonathan to an unreliable Saul. All of these could be interpreted as stratagems or ruses permissible in the holy war. But then doesn't war itself require such tactics? Lies, deceptions in order to gain advantage over an enemy. Even the Apostle Paul could be 
uh, rather tricky. You know, I would dare say lawyer-like. Sorry. You could be a little lawyerly. Uh, uh, for example, when he set the Sadducees against the Pharisees, when he cried, I am a Pharisee, the son of a Pharisee. I stand on trial because of my hope in the resurrection from the dead. Because the Pharisees believed in the resurrection of the dead and the Sadducees. That's the truth. But it certainly wasn't the whole truth. <clears throat> and nothing but... <clears throat> the truth. He wasn't merely on trial for believing in the resurrection. Otherwise, every Pharisee would have been on trial. But he was on trial well, about what wasn't said concerning the resurrection, that namely the Christ. But before you start wanting to put Paul under the gun, um, you have to ask, was he with each and all of the others above there, not walking in the truth, fighting for the truth, advancing the truth? And I think the answer in each one of those cases is yes. We fulfill the law by loving God and our neighbor. And that gets back to our first session. If you have no categories of moral reasoning, then that goes in one ear and out the other. Oh, yeah, I'm supposed to love God and my neighbor. Yeah, whatever, okay. And don't lie. But So don't lie and don't love God and your neighbor. Well, yeah, well. But you start seeing that you're going to have to sort some things out here. One may not use love, of course, to relativize the law, but one must use love as a key to understanding God's will. Thus, some of Dutch descent may have had relatives who hid those who fled from the Nazis. And they misled the German soldiers with the words of Rahab or the ploys of the wife of the man from Bahurim. And so they obeyed their Lord. I'm going to argue they did. Love is also the key to the many questions we raise in jest and sometimes in earnest when we contemplate what absolute truthfulness would do to our relationships when answering, how do you like the painting? Or how do you like the food? Uh, reformed ethicists, Smeeds and Dalma, each from different countries, different times, different reformed traditions in many respects, each observe that this commandment doesn't rule out a good joke, the high art of fantasy, or the low art of the tall tale. Does it rule out acting? When I was a child, my sister played the role of Penny, our cousin played the role of Ginny, and I played Butch the dog. And I loved playing Butch the dog. Should we be punished for our deception? What about many board or card games where the rules of the game are deception? Could games of bluff survive if truthfulness was an absolute moral law in any context? Must every wife tell a boring husband he's a clod? Not a parishioner on leaving a Sunday service tell the pastor his sermon was a tedious blend of trivia and platitude. I've heard it a thousand times. It's the truth! Uh, but is it practicing love for your neighbor, husband, pastor? Since human relationships are complicated and because love is the fulfillment of the law, all of us must from time to time, time to time, 
Capella tender lie, if you want to call it that. Sometimes a bold-faced lie. Or we lie, a bold-faced lie, in order to protect life. Consider this. May you protect someone's life with guns. May you protect your own life with fists or your wife's life with fists or guns because someone else is trying to harm them. Are you allowed to harm them to prevent them from harming someone you love? You say, well, yes. Oh, but I can't prevent them harming them with lies? With fists, yes. Guns, yes. Lies, no. I don't think that works. I don't think it even begins to work. I can tell them a lie to divert them. I can shoot them with a gun to kill them. Both ways, you're preventing something that has a higher value, namely the life of the innocent party. Well, we'll talk more about this below. Love is also the fulfillment of the ninth commandment, don't forget. Love walks in the truth, but it won't use truth to enable evildoers to do evil. That's not loving at all. Love, rather, rejoices with the truth, but rejoicing with truth may also mean forgetfulness about the record of wrong, because love does not delight in evil. Being inventive, love knows how to avoid the lie. Most often, and almost never, needs to resort to this emergency lie, or whatever you want to call it, but sometimes the painful truth needs to be told, and sometimes a painful lie as a necessity is just that in order to love your neighbor. Well, this is not minimizing lying at all. James is a most potent text in this regard. Uh, taming the tongue is the most difficult thing. Uh, who can hold it in check? Teachers who do much talking, I'm among them, uh, can have influence, will be judged more strictly. I always remind students who aspire to be preachers, watch out what you ask for, you know. Uh, you're held to a higher responsibility. So all of us must learn to love the truth. We must learn to speak it candidly, as the Catechism tells us. Um, we're not to act against the truth, but for the truth. But that puts a different angle on it. Act for the truth. Act for love for your neighbor and the like. To protect life. To help others. To protect reputation. Act lo with love toward your neighbor so you don't participate in gossip. Or you put an end to it. You help defend one's honor or name and the like. That you speak it candidly, yes. But candidly doesn't mean bluntly, rudely, harshly, um, honestly, but sometimes most tenderly. James reminds us, as we've all heard, we put bits in the mouths of horses, these big animals led about by the bridle and bit. But people, who can tame, who can bridle people? Who can get a hold of her mouth? Who can <laughs> tame his tongue? Man, it's not easily done. You can steer big ships with rudders, but just a few sparks cause a fire and sow 
the tongue. It drips the poison of the old serpent, says James. Even Jesus warns us, with your words you'll be acquitted, and by them you'll be condemned. So the fires of hell uh, are at stake in these kind of things. Gossip, slander, lying, or devilish sins. And uh, they spread like vermin. One preacher offered this illustration I thought is most apt. In an African village, the tell-bearer, the liar, was punished by the elder of the town. She had to scatter the feathers of a chicken along the way to her house. But after the wind had blown, she had to regather the feathers, all of them. And when she couldn't get them together again, she learned her lesson. Evil words cannot be recalled. They go their way to wreak havoc. It's like the modern internet. You put it out there and it explodes. You put it out there and you can't call it back. It takes on a life of its own. Holy Spirit fire is one thing. The tongues of fire of Pentecost is one thing. The fire set ablaze by a wicked, poisonous tongue is a whole another thing. Um, but are all lies the same? So I think I've made a potent enough case and probably preaching to the choir to convince you uh, lies and the lying liars who tell them <laughs> is a bad thing. Uh, I wonder how many lies and the lying liars who told them was in that book as well. No doubt there were some. Um, but is every untruth of the same weight, the same sort? Shouldn't we distinguish, say, certain kinds of understood untruth versus malicious lies? So this question of what we might call harmless lies um, but maybe because we realize what's happening here, we don't really take them as being misdirected or deceived or harmed by them. I mean, some lies are just to you know put a little oil in the ball bearings of our social rubbing next to each other, smooth out some wrinkles. So you can start with the polite lie. I'd never forget in the Christian Reformed Church uh, news article or uh, magazine, The Banner, goes way back in the 80s, there was an exchange between a professor and a pastor on polite lies. And the professor was defending them and the pastor was most vehemently objecting. And I never forget what the professor says. Well, as for me and my house, we'll continue to politely say we like the lamb, the lima bean casserole. <laughs> I always, I, I always found that one a chuckle because my wife absolutely despises lima beans, and <laughs> I always wanted to see her face in such a setting. Would you like some more lima bean casserole? And watch her, you know, negotiate that one. Um, well, no, I'm full. Liar! <laughs> You're not full. You didn't even eat that much. You hate it. <laughs> uh, um, so you get invited somewhere. I'd love to come. Or, you know, another illustration. I remember I saw it, but, oh, Jack needs a ride to Grand Rapids. 
You happen to be leaving in 30 minutes to Grand Rapids. What a happenstance. He's just, if anyone could take him, oh, but Jack's insufferable. I'll have two and a half hours of utter misery if Jack comes along with me. <laughs> you say nothing. Is that a lie? Perhaps. Euphemisms. Here we seek to look at a rough-edged world and knock some of the harsh edges off of it. Um, we terminate a pregnancy instead of kill a fetus. Uh, we have meaningful relationships. We were in a, a we we were in a meaningful relationship rather than committing adultery. Uh, all kinds of things like this. We use these euphemisms to hide behind um, what is icky. The slaughter of you know six million Jews is is termed a final solution. Almost sounds like an algebra problem or something. A final solution. Exaggerations. We often inflate our words, not to hurt, not really to to deceive, but really to entertain each other, to spice up conversation. I have a colleague who's just given to hyperbole, and that's just who he is. Uh, an average woman becomes a beautiful person. <laughs> an ordinary sermon becomes an inspiration. Well, okay, I, I think someone was. Uh, someone tries rather hard, and he's credited with incredible, unbelievable effort. Well, you know, I can believe the effort. Uh, it's not incredible. Uh, you sprinkle compliments to friends. That was sensational. This is students in preaching class. Oh, that was fantastic. It was such a great sermon. I'm the critic, you know, going, it's okay. <laughs> I'm encouraging. I'm building up. That's what the students are doing, and I'm like, Come down off the clouds. You're not there yet. Uh, fantastic. We get so used to this, though. You know, someone comes back from a vacation. How did it go? Yeah, I had a pretty good time. And the, well, what went wrong? Pretty good time. You didn't have a good time? Yeah, I had a pretty good time. Whoa, it wasn't a good vacation? You're supposed to be, oh, it's awesome, man. This is Wow! I mean, we live in a world of wow! Everything's wow! He had to be there! No, he didn't. Jocularity. Jocularity. We amuse each other through untruths in the way of jocularity. When a comedian tells jokes, we know he's fibbing. My grandfather was an expert tall tale teller. We knew... It was all baloney. We knew, he knew, even as he told it, the smirk on his face, it was baloney. And that's what made it funny, because we all knew it. As a child, I remember watching the short cartoon, Commander McBrag. So if you ever watched the underdog cartoon show, you maybe caught episodes of little 90-minute segments of this British character the commander would tell tall tales of his heroism and exploits, always escaping certain death by a hair's breadth due to his brilliance and ingenuity. His colleague had to endure these impossible tales 
but could not help getting caught up in the story. Good heavens, Commander, what did you do next? And could only, at the conclusion of the story, compliment the Commander for his cleverness, usually incorporating a terrible pun to which virtually every episode the Commander would respond, quite, you know. Oh, amazing! Yes, quite. I mean, it was hilarious. It's all balderdash. The harm done? Well, it's comedy. Uh, and that's what comedy mostly is. Tall tales, fantasy, exaggeration, the unexpected punchline, and acting, too. Within, I know there's immoral parameters, but there's also moral parameters of acting. They're playing a role, and we let ourselves be taken in. You go to a movie, you watch a TV show. They're acting, okay? I know it. They're playing a role. They're acting like someone they're not. That's not who they are. They're telling a story. I'm letting myself enter this fantasy and be entertained by it. Two girls playing dolls. I found it fun even as an adult, to join in with little eight-year-old girls and play Barbie. Because I could come up with way more interesting conversation, usually involving high jealousy between them uh, over Ken, than they're boring. Let's change into this. I want to go out with Ken now and you go away. <laughs> no, Ken likes me. No, he doesn't. <laughs> I'm Ken's girlfriend. And the little girls are like, wow, Barbie's really is fun, <laughs> you know? <laughs> um, so, yes, even adults, even adult males like to play with Barbies in the right setting and context. So we don't scold kids like this. We read novels. We read fiction knowing that we're being taken in. This isn't lying. It's fantasy. And then, of course, as I said earlier, there's games of deceit, game-playing deceits. Um, a clue player. When I played clue, I would always be watching. You know, they showed the card. Where are you going to mark it on your little... You mark it up there. Oh, it's weapons. Or you mark it over here. It's a room. And down here, it's a person. So, I mean, we were quickly always moving our pencils all over the paper. So you had no clue, clue, ha, ha, uh, what was going on. I mean, if you could just figure it out, oh, she marked the top of the page. That's, that's you know, weapons. It's not the wrench, you know. That's not fun. The fun is not knowing. And think, think of games like football. The whole point of football is you deceive. I played football. You make everything look like it's going to go that way, and then the ball's flipped that way. You faked them out. You deceived them. That's the point. You know, play action pass. It looks like they're running, but no, they're not. And now Aaron Rodgers, for the benefit of Bart, Aaron Rodgers bullets one down, and the Bears tackle him and wound his knee, and he can't play for the season. <laughs> uh, at least they have a quarterback. <laughs> Boulder Dash. 
we've all played balderdash. You come up with some obscure word and you look it up in the dictionary. The way I play balderdash, I never give the dictionary definition. I give the equivalent of the dictionary. I make it sound like a stupid person wrote it. <laughs> but it's accurate. Makes it sound like an eight-year-old. But it's perfectly accurate. I deceive them. And then when I'm on the other end, making up words, I make it sound like it comes straight out of Webster. And that's the fun of the game. That's the point of the game. We're not sinning. And then there's glosses. And here we try to take the rough edge off life like Uncle Joe's a drunkard. He's a broken, broken man. But you tell a little child, Uncle Joe's lonely and once in a while he drinks too much. Or some such thing. Um, some of these glosses are unhelpful. Some of them simply... When I was a boy, I tried out to be the pitcher on my little league team. I was always a runt for my age. Runtly. I was small. I was stout and fast, but I was small. And I was so concerned to make sure I got the ball right over the plate, right into the mitt. I didn't throw as hard as I could. I could throw quite a bit harder, actually, but I wanted to get it right in there. And at the end of my little tryout, he says, well, maybe next year you'll grow and you can try again. He softened the blow. What he really wanted to say, you don't throw the ball hard enough, which I could, but I was going for accuracy. You don't throw, you're too puny. You don't throw the ball. He wasn't cruel to me. You're a runt. Forget about it. That's not what he did. Try out next year. You'll, maybe you'll grow. Well, he was being gentle with me. He was saying, life is a little off-white now when it was a bit more sad gray. At least that's how he saw it. Now, saying all that, I'm not denying that there can also be harm in harmless lies, if you will. Um, if we get in the habit of always fudging, always glossing, always using euphemisms, always taking the edge off, you know, always playing games, always telling jokes, always making light of, well, a sense of truthfulness is eroded. We might not be taken seriously. People not, might not see that we can come alongside them with depth and honesty and care and seriousness. Uh, people who don't know me well, I mean, if they just see the, the jokey side of my personality, they don't know, actually, the serious, tender uh, personal, intimate side. And other persons where I don't trust, I never even show the jokey side of my person. If I don't trust you, and then they might think, oh, he's just very aloof and distant and serious. Me, serious? Well, sometimes, yes. Sometimes, but not all the time. So, truth-telling, showing our hearts you know, the time to be a jokester, but the time to be serious is also a necessity. And so anything overblown, out of reality, out of sync, uh, even so-called 
harmless lies can, uh, like I said, bring an erosion of truthfulness, an evasion of reality. Some people are morally handcuffed if we are always into polite lying. They never are told, this is what's wrong with you, son. You're arrogant. And people smell it on you, and they don't like it. This is what's wrong with you, uh, employee. You're lazy. I've been all sweet and making little jokes to try to encourage you to get busy. But what I really need to do is now sit down and to tell you, I expect more from you if you want to keep this job. I'm not happy with your work here. See, they need more than just the soft touches. Sometimes they need a direct con It's the same with students in seminary. You can take a soft approach and see how it goes, but sometimes you have to sit them down. This behavior is not acceptable. We do that with our own children. And that's what's needed sometimes in marriages, too. You quit dancing around it, being so polite that they're not getting the point. So in saying that there's such thing as harmless lies, I'm not saying that ought to be a way of life. I'm just saying it's a feature of life that needs to be kept in its place and understood that it is a place, but it's not what characterizes I don't see how two people would really fall in love with each other if, you know, as husband and wife, if or two friends really come to trust each other as close, intimate friends, if all it is is flirtation and jokes and humor and soft touches. There also needs to be something that's straight and honest and deep, and that's what we're called to do. And if we are ever into this, these soft touches, it nurtures cynicism in us. So I make that corrective, but I'm also making the point that uh, we always need these soft touches. I'll never forget, I had a situation pastorally in which these aged parents, I go to their house because their uh, adult son in his 40s had died tragically, a tractor rolled over on him, went into the ditch, it rolled, and he died. Tragic, painful, heart-wrenching death. They asked me how I liked the uh, fruitcake they had served me. The truth is I hated it. The truth is it was awful in my mind. The truth is I gagged on it. The truth is I politely more. I think I did the truthful thing for grieving, broken, devastated parents in their agedness, rather than go, no, I, I, I don't like fruitcake, or I took a bite, but no more. You know, I'm going to be brutally honest, I hate it. It's not appropriate. What's appropriate is to love people. And uh, you know, I don't think I even said I liked it. It's just they offered more and I took more. I didn't want to take more. <laughs> I mean, I'm, I'm emotionally damaged by it, actually. <laughs> that's, why, that's why I tell the story to this day. It was a tough thing. Um, humans can be brittle, and our words, truthful words even, need to match 
and be framed with appropriate gentleness and care. And uh, questions. Next session, we're going to look at this this telling, actual being deceitful for a reason. Questions you might have. Anyone? Anyone? Bueller? Bueller? Anyone? Yes. Uh, Anne in the back there. There you are. Well, I'd like to know that there's some good things of coming to runt them, being a runt. Uh, uh, runtness has has its payout once in a while. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> Especially in a world of Dutchmen, you know, they're the tallest people in in uh, the in the world on average. And so, if you're a runt, what are you six? Eleven. <laughs> six. <laughs> Put your son in a headlock. What do you mean six? Any other questions here? Yes. I just, you explained this a little bit, but I was just wondering why, uh, especially like the euphemisms, why so many of your examples are the harmless lies when I think, like a lot of them are very much not harmless lies. Well, that's a good one. Good question. Why did I include euphemisms, which mostly tell of taking the tarnish off sinful behaviors, if you will, and you call them harmless lies? Well, that's a good, that, that's fair to say. I guess my one is that Mary Poppins said a spoonful of sugar helps the medicine go down. So uh, your observations actually astute. Um, that some euphemisms fit a little better, if you wanted to call it that, under glosses. And that some of these euphemisms, certainly some of the ones I spoke of, um, what, what they, they're probably not altogether harmless, so they maybe don't belong there. They're not as such untrue. She did terminate a pregnancy, but she also killed a child, right? Um, they did have a meaningful relationship. We're thinking about getting married, but it was an illicit, horrible relationship, and it was adulterous. Um, uh, dirty bookstores are called adult bookstores. They're certainly not for children, but it's so innocuous you know, what I, I love the preacher who came and did chapel once, and on the way he saw a sign that said Gentleman's Club. And as he said, well, I don't know why they call it a Gentleman's Club. No gentleman go there. <laughs> I always thought, yeah, <laughs> bingo. Uh, there's another euphemism for something ugly and dirty. 
So in that sense, you're absolutely right. They're not harmless. So good point taken there. Thank you. Anyone else? Well, let's take our break. Uh, not very long. Um, Okay, well, we now come to our final session of this evening class, Christians Living in a Sin-Stained World, and this final eighth session on this fourth evening is Truth-Telling in an Age of Deceit, and here we're going to get into extreme cases uh, when we find ourselves in the conflicts of life conflicts, in fact, in life and death sort of scenarios and situations, and look at some biblical materials that way. The philosopher Immanuel Kant argued that the truth must be told always, period. It must be told bluntly, must be told boldly, wholly, without reservation, regardless of the consequences. So in his moral reasoning, consequences never figure into it. This is a fairly popular view in some Christian circles. It's uh, an absolutist view, often called unqualified absolutism. Here, in the conflict between life and truth, truth trumps life. Others opt for what's called conflicting absolutism, inasmuch as an evil world creates a no-win situation for us, no-win circumstances, and one must choose between the lesser of two evils. Here, life trumps truth, but we're still guilty. We, in, you know, in saying you lie to save a life, okay, you did the right thing, sort of, but you're still guilty and you still need to get forgiven for your guilt. Another view, which many Christian ethicists opt for, is the correct one. I, among them, is called graded absolutism. Here, life trumps truth as the greater of two goods. Facing the unavoidable conflict between life and truth, we do right to opt for loving our neighbor to protect his life versus aiding an evildoer to harm another's life. There is no guilt. Instead, the intent and purpose of the law is fulfilled. You know, that's among texts like, I desire mercy, not sacrifice, which is also showing within the law, there's things that have a higher weight, a higher priority than other things. It's not all one and the same. Uh, that's also uh, the Mark text, the Korban text. I devoted money, this money to the Lord, so I can't help my aged parents. Well, no, that's hypocrisy because helping aged parents has a higher weight. And it, that's part of moral reasoning. And if you just flatten out everything to one thing, then you end up in Immanuel Kant territory here. So this view recognizes that some laws have more moral weight than others. And that's what we're focusing on here. Uh, so lies told to bad people. And just so I'm, I'm clear, I'm not going to argue if someone's bad, you may tell them lies. That's not where I'm going with this. Otherwise, we would just all be telling lies because most people are bad. <laughs> um, 
but you'll get my point as we proceed. The great Dutch jurist Hugo Grotius taught that some people do not have a right to the truth from us. Anyone who's ever had an enemy is confronted by his version of the what he calls the just lie. Did Hitler have a right to know the truth about the Allies' plans to invade Europe? No, we say. We must lie to the great liars of the world in order to protect the truth. Or as Churchill remarked at Yalta, in wartime, truth is so precious that she should always be attended by a bodyguard of lies. Does the devil, the prince of lies, have a right to our truth? Do those people who do the devil's work, do they have a right? Tell a lie then to any person who's lost his right to the truth and you tell a justifiable lie? Does that test work? I don't think so. Were all the lies told to save the Anne Franks of Europe justified on the grounds that the Nazis did not deserve the truth? Possibly so, probably so, but if you agree, you must face up to some hard questions before you conclude that all lies told to unworthy people are justified lies. One is this, who has the right to judge when another person has lost his right to the truth? Grotius, for example, uh, believed that children and mentally retarded people had no right to truthfulness. Well, how did he decide that these innocent people should be cut off from the community of truth? What prevents the genius then, on the same premise, from deciding that all inferior people lose their right to the truth? We're back to those high-minded lies. We're so superior to the rest of you, right? Uh, what prevents a business person from assuming that all tough competitors lose their right to truth? Responsible societies do not trust an elite to separate people who deserve the truth from those who don't. The society that tolerates a lying elite is a society fast turning into a jungle in which no one can act uh, on the non-negotiable premise of community. And community is that we can trust one another. So Hitlers do arise on the surface of the earth's scum, and lies may be necessary to drown them. But when we justify such lies, we must have more to go on than the sheer fact that bad people don't deserve our truth. We can't live with an ethic that invests every person with the right to decide when people around him are good enough to deserve truth. That's just not going to work. We need a standard that helps us calculate whether our truth-telling prevents or helps evildoers do evil, and then serious evil at that. Otherwise, our truth-telling comes to participate in and advance evil rather than our neighbor's good. So let's use a weighty case, lies to save lives. It does come down to the issue of lie versus life. This may be a workable test. If I can save another person's life only by telling a lie, I'm justified in lying. And by the law of self-defense, if I may lie to save a neighbor's life, I should be allowed to lie to save my own. In short, you know, a, a battered woman, her crazed husband's going to kill her. He got out of jail. Now he's going to end it. She's divorcing him. And where are you? I cannot tell a lie. I'm Immanuel Kant. 
I'm at Grandma's house, you know. Martha? Martha. Oh, the one on Grand? Yep. Are you going to stay there? I cannot tell a lie. I'm going to stay there. Is Grandpa there? Your brother? Nope. I'm here alone with Grandma. Well, I'm going, I'm going to go over there and kill you. I cannot tell a lie. I'll still I'll be here when you can. Uh, that's that's the Kantian view of things. You never, ever, ever withhold the truth. You must tell the truth always. So uh, most of us simply feel that when it comes to life, we may lie boldly and grandly without qualms because life has a weight and a significance over against an untruth told to an evildoer. Uh, we generally don't argue with this out. It seems like an innate sense, a law written on our hearts. Lying to save a life, however, is often a gamble. We do not, uh, we're not dealing with legal contracts as a rule, as if, you know, life can be guaranteed by a lie. Situations in which a person lies to save a life are not always cut and dried. We know that. The Gestapo at the door. You have two Jews in your attic. The Nazis are hunting them. You lie because you know that if the Gestapo finds them, the Jews are dead. Uh, but consider an armed man tramped in a, uh, trapped in a bank. He takes everyone in the bank hostages, as hostages, threatens to kill them. You tell him as a negotiator that he'll be allowed to freely escape if he releases the hostages. You lie and you know he'll be arrested. But you lie only with a hope that your lie, your lie will save a life. You don't know for sure. You don't know if he'll go nuts. You do not even have favorable odds, perhaps. Yet human life seems important enough uh, that it's worth the risk. So we generally are going to, even if the chance is only 51%, yeah, well, the lie's worth it in order to protect these lives. So we outweigh the evil of lying, if you will, with the good of life. The value of a person's life seems so overwhelmingly more weighty than, than uh, the lie you tell. Have we then found a safe test for a justified lie? Well, probably, but uh, even here uh, we must be clear that we're protecting life. It's for the purpose of life, and there's no other way out but the lie. This is not advocating that bad people, because they're bad, don't deserve the truth. It's advocating something good. Protecting life and loving your neighbor's life this way is something that will outweigh the truth to this sort of person with this sort of attempt to do this sort of act. Then, yes. Another factor here, returning to the Nazis, is whether we're actually loving our neighbors as ourselves when we aid and abet an enemy to do evil to them, to perpetrate a gross injustice to them. The aim of the Ninth Commandment is to protect our neighbor's good name. Are we, by speaking the truth, willing to break the Sixth Commandment to protect our, late, our neighbor's life? In other words, I'll tell the truth. Telling the truth leads to their murder. I'll tell the truth and aid and abet their murder. 
Well, that's called loving your neighbor. That's protecting your neighbor's life. That's doing what you can to protect your neighbor's life. I don't think it is at all. Um, So the ramifications here are large. And what are the results of our actions? And this is why, though we're not utilitarians and we don't measure everything we do by consequences, uh, consequences aren't inconsequential in moral reasoning pertaining also to truth-telling and the like. Um, if uh, So, I mean, even in telling a lie, you have to ask yourself, what's the consequences to me? What's the consequences to my family? If I don't protect this pe- person, what's the consequences to them or their family and the further ramifications? We often find ourselves at odds, at, at limits, at... at uh, a set of circumstances in which we're not able to calculate. And here again, we seek to love neighbors ourselves, to honor God, and to walk in his truth. Um, so in some situations, such as war, or as when evil's on the rampage, we do owe enemies, uh, rather do we owe enemies the truth. Soldier! What's the war plans? Usually it's name, rank, and serial number, right? But uh, Kant, you've got to tell the truth because you've got to universalize anything. And if you allow the circumstantial lie, then you universalize that, and then you have circumstantial lies everywhere. Uh, his categorical imperative brought this necessity of ever telling the truth. And some Christians have been raised rather that way. But war itself is a deceptive game. And Bible uh, wars and battles within Scripture itself shows stratagems, deceptions, ruses in order to draw out an enemy and get them to deceive them. Let's take the famed case of Rahab. In my opinion, I've heard some poor sermons on Sister Rahab. Is Rahab a liar or a person who's chosen the right path in the great conflict of kingdoms, which is already underway when the spies spy out the land? Notice, spying is a form of deception. Otherwise, it wouldn't be called that. La, 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 we're Jews on the march hoping to take over your land. Here we are. Hello, everybody. Now they're spies. The goal of spies, these spies, conquer these foes of God in this kingdom. Rahab opts to participate in the work of the spies by hiding them. They too, after all, are hiding, deceiving the enemy about their whereabouts. We may not dismiss the fact that the Bible never rebukes her for her deception or talks about her lie. We do. The Bible doesn't. Quite the opposite. She's commended twice in Joshua 6 because she hid them and told them to go the wrong way. She's counted among not the not my people who become God's people, Psalm 87. She's named among those who are included in God's people. She's one of the mothers of Christ according to the flesh, Matthew chapter 1, even as she's mentioned among the heroes of the faith in Hebrews 11. 
And James explicitly observes, by way of a question, was not even Rahab the prostitute considered righteous for what she did, literally justified by works, when she gave lodging to the spies, hid them, and sent them off in a different direction than the direction she had sent (laughs) the people looking for them? Her lie is not mentioned. Could it be because scripture doesn't reckon her as being guilty? It seems so. Then too, in hiding the spies, there's an implicit promise not to give them away. Slow down here. You're hiding them. Where are they? Do you have them? Uh, Yes, I promised to hide them, but now I'm going to renege on my promise. I lied to them now. Here they are. There it is. Hiding them, she's made a promise to hide them, not betray them. Go in the stocks, hide. And when they ask about you, I'll tell them you're in the stocks. I'm lying to you. (laughs) I never hear preachers bring that part out. But then again, I don't preach that passage that way. If she gives them away, she's betrayed her pledge to them because they've entrusted themselves to her to protect them from their foes. Otherwise, they wouldn't be hiding. So if now she betrays, she's lied to them. It makes no sense then that she acts to hide them from detection, an act of camouflage, participating in the deception, only to betray their whereabouts. The second deception is as innocent as the first, all which in these circumstances is well and good as an act of self-defense and self-preservation. She's entered the war of the kingdoms of conquest here. And she's on the right side, the holy side, the divine side, and she sides with that side. She hides them, her first deception, which is carried through and continued in her words misdirecting those seeking them. All of this helps us see that truth-telling has context. And here I'm going to use an essay by Dietrich Bonhoeffer where he asked the question, what's meant by telling the truth? Bonhoeffer, as many of you know, took up the fight against Hitler in his native Germany. He took sides in that war, in the moral battle of that war. I've heard some uh, call him uh, a traitor. Uh, I view him quite differently, actually, but that's another question. We can talk about that later. From a Nazi prison cell, he wrote these sorts of words, and he argues that truth-telling is covenantal and contextual. And don't let the word contextual uh, bring fear in your heart. Bonhoeffer maintains that the obligation to tell the truth is circumscribed by the type of relationship we have with a person. What does a 40-year-old couple, well, make it a, Make it a 49-year-old couple. What do they owe to uh, a young son in the way of telling the truth? Or at a certain stage of life, in their 20s, they tell their 5-year-old son this about a set of circumstances that's, that's bringing trauma in the family. 
but advance it 20 more years, and now the son 25 year old is 25 years old, and now they tell him a much fuller, rounded out portrait and picture and details. We all sense immediately that some things are not fitting for a five-year-old that are quite fitting for a 25-year-old. Truth-telling has context. Truth-telling has relationship appropriateness. This is what Bonhoeffer is trying to help us see. Um, the relationship of a father then to a six-year-old is different than his relationship with a 36-year-old son. His relationship with his employer is different. Uh, this is the covenantal approach that he's talking about. There's promises and expectations and obligations, you know, covenantal kind of stuff that that is distinct in different sorts of relationships. Your wife deserves and has a right to know where you went after work. Your boss doesn't. Your six-year-old son doesn't deserve or have a right or a need to know your current financial woes or marital troubles. Perhaps a 36-year-old son needs to know those things and has a right to know them. We must take into account the sort of relationships we have with different persons. The question must be asked whether and in what way a man is entitled to demand truthful speech of others. Speech between parents and children is, in the nature of the case, different than that between a husband and a wife, or between close friends, or between just mere acquaintances. There's a deep trauma in your life. How are you? I'm fine. The acquaintance only deserves I'm fine. When you're not, in fact, fine, the acquaintance does not deserve, this is the devastating event in my life and I, I, feel un, I feel tangled and damaged and at my wit's end. The, the, the nonchalant I'm fine is the truth you deserve from me because you're not allowed into this world. You don't have the trust, the intimacy, the role, the relationship wherein I can make myself open to you and you have the right to know. Truth-telling has context, has relationship dimensions. And when we flatten that all out, you know, this is in part why some fellowship in the church is so damaged is because certain people get to know what they shouldn't know and then you can't trust people and now I'm not going to let anyone know anything. So it's important that we respect these things. Truth-telling, Bonhoeffer argues, isn't only about moral character. It's also about correct appreciation of situations and it needs the serious reflection upon those situations. So um, in a home situation, how much are you allowed to reveal about your home? Everyone right here. How much do I get to know? You just know me as a teacher who's taught some things, who has pastoral credentials and professorial background, but I'm still quite a stranger to you in a lot of ways. What do, what do I have a right to know from you? If I go poking around, 
don't we say keep your nose out of it? That's none of your business, right? Well, we instinctually get it, but sometimes we act as if we don't. So we understand there's a certain requisite of privacy. There's a covenantal trust of privacy for a family that's different than for a stranger or a mere acquaintance. Bonhoeffer also tells us that the ethical, to act ethically regarding truthfulness, is attached to specific times, places, and people. So that speaking truthful words, we find that the right words are always with one's gaze and one's thought directed toward the way in which that given reality, that situation, exists in God, through God, and for God. He's not keeping God out of it because God is the one who is the context for everything. He's concerned that we do not reduce truth-telling to just specific cases. Our words are subject to the requirement of being truthful. But he's aware truth in the wrong hands is a club, is a weapon, is a hammer, is a dagger. Truth can be used to harm, to endanger. Truth can be spoken with an underlying intention to deceive. Flattery can be well-meant and genuine. It can also be very deceptive and uh, coercive or manipulative, sinister. People can speak hypocritically without uttering material untruth. You know, very suave liars actually won't lie at all. They'll wield truth, but in a, for a very sinister end and aim. I'm in the truth. They're not in the truth. They're not loving neighbor. They're not of Christ and the light. But they speak truth. But it's not living truth. It's not walking in the truth. Um... So true words in that form are untrue. They're deceptive. Uh, they're veiled. The, the harm, the deception's veiled, if you will. Bonhoeffer observes that only cynics think they can speak the truth at all times in all places to all people in the same way. They don't care who they hurt or wound. You, you meet that, that blunt sort of person. I tend to be blunt, especially when I feel like people are um, dancing around items, you know. I, I, I'm bad at meetings. I'm bad at uh, going to a classes or presbytery kind of meeting where all this veiled, oh, it's all the time, all this veiled kind of nicety when you just want to say, this is what you really think, why don't you say it? You know, I, I, want, I want the truth out there. But I'm also aware that you can speak the truth unlovingly, without tact and without good effect. So, you know, I just call a spade a spade. Whoever doesn't like it can lump it. Well, you can be very dismissive then and uh, destructive in how you handle it. So be it if people are hurt and wounded, you can sneer. But... Truth used and placed in Satan's hands is not truth that fulfills God's purposes. 
So this is why I make the point with Bonhoeffer that truth needs to be governed by wise love. What's awry here is that truth isn't governed by love. And the truth, this truth, when it's wielded in this blunt, undiscerning way, is wielded actually to harm others. And it brings us back that in the, this multiplex of relationships and settings, the way we speak and the kind of truth we owe to one another is, uh, is something that needs to respect that context. This is why we're so frustrated by the media when we feel like we deserve a certain kind of truth from them or uh, from uh, political leaders. We want a certain kind of true speech. And every once in a while, you get it, right? Every, every once in a while, if there's a crisis in the nation, you know, very sober, you know, the politics is left out for just a tad, a bit. And, and there's even a gathering. Everyone puts down their, their knives for just very temporarily in order, and you can get a sense, yeah, we're on the same page. We're not, it's not being spun. And maybe even then it is a little bit, but there's enough truth there that we, we grab hold and rejoice in it. So Bonhoeffer isn't advocating that we treat truth like silly putty, as fun as it is to play with that. He's aware that if we uh, cast our truth-telling in forms specified for very specific situations, that one can seek to hide the truth behind all kinds of sentiments and he knows that we can make that an excuse to be deceptive, too. So he's, of course, this is a guy in prison, right? This is a guy who understood all the propaganda of the Nazi regime. This is a guy who had to exercise deceit in order to participate in uh, the downfall of Hitler. But he's also a guy who understands that, a man who understands that truth and words occupy habitats. And not all truth is for all ears. And here he offers, I think, a very apt illustration of what he's after. And this is the bottom of page 38. A teacher asks a child in front of the class whether it's true that his father often comes home drunk. It's true. But the child denies it. The teacher's question has placed this child in a situation for which he is not yet prepared. He feels only that what is taking place is an unjustified interference in the order of the family and that he must oppose it. He must protect the truth about family privacy. Perhaps in his little child brain, that's all he gets. This is embarrassing and this is terrible. No, that's not true. My father doesn't come home drunk. What goes on in the family is not for the ears of that classroom or for that teacher. The family has its own secret and must preserve it. The teachers failed to respect the family institution. The child ought now to find a way of answering which could comply with both the rule of the family, its privacy, and the rule of the school, tell your teacher the truth. But uh, I think that's a better question for my dad. And I think he might want to give you a fat lip for that. You know? But 
he's not that sophisticated yet, right? Go tell. I, I don't know. I'll ask my dad, and maybe he'll have a he'll visit you with a stick. You know. Um, he lacks that kind of experience and knowledge and ability to express himself. He can't say, sir, that's an impertinent question. You seem to be making an accusation, not asking a question. I'm sure my father would be happy to take this matter up with you face to face, man to man, and perhaps fist in your face. As a simple no, the child has told an untruth. He has told a lie, and yet at the same time, he gives expression to the truth that the family is an institution of its own and that the teacher has no right, in this context certainly, to interfere in it. The child's answer is a lie, yes, yet this lie contains more truth relative to protecting the family and loving the family and protecting his father that is to say, it's more in accordance with the reality of what God intends for us. He says the Eighth Commandment because he's a Lutheran. Um, then would have been the case if the child had betrayed his father's weakness in front of the class. According to the measure of his knowledge, he acted correctly. That is, he, within his capacity. Yeah, he lied, yeah, but... Was he deceptive? Was he betraying walking in the truth? Was he betraying his family? Was he betraying love for his family, his neighbor? No. And that's how life goes in a messy, broken world. Truth is not owed in every context because some of it is nosy, nosy, nosy. And so the child spoke formal untruth but respected the truth of the family. I think uh, he's right about that. It's, you, it's naive to reduce a lie to false information because it's not concrete enough. For the truth demanded is demanding truth apart from reality, from context, and that's inappropriate. Instead, we need to see that truth needs to conform to God's order for creation. And we've been talking about worldview and seeing life as God designed it and his intentions. Laws are not hoops to jump. Here's human beings. They don't have any hoops to jump. I think I'll invoke laws that they can jump hoops. There, watch them jump hoops. Watch them fail to jump hoops. That's not what the law's for. The law's for human flourishing. The law's for getting on well in God's creation. The law's an expression of God's nature and his design for how we are as image bearers. And this is where flourishing grows. So when we worship God only, life flourishes. When we worship God his way, there's fellowship and abundance. When we respect the authority structures like parents, and we give them respect and obey them in the structures that, that spread out from that, life is ordered and goes well. When we respect the truth of family and its need for privacy, and we respect truth, and it brings fidelity, it brings confidence, it brings trust, it brings order, 
It, it brings safety. It brings joy. But see, in other words, the laws aren't there. Jump hoops, people. Is Look at the way and path in which life can flourish. And I say some, from, in sermons from time to time, if the whole world kept the Ten Commandments, we would almost have paradise. Not quite, but almost. Think it through. Everyone knows God. Everyone loves God. Everyone worships God. Poof. No stealing. No lying. No infidelity. No fornication. No adultery. No. My word. Wow! No racial tension, no hatred, no lying politicians, no lies and the lying liars telling them. So Bonhoeffer, I think, is really on to something here. That truth as conformity to God's order of creation shows us that that definition of what it is to walk in the truth, you know, it's not merely a deliberate deception of another person to his detriment that's in there, sure. It's not merely a conscious discrepancy between a thought, your thought and your speech, that's in there. But each of these are too weak. The first definition fails to see that one can lie without there being a conscious discrepancy between thought and speech. <laughs> it's too, it's too, as when a notorious liar for once tells the truth in order to mislead. And when an apparently correct statement contains some deliberate ambiguity or deliberately omits the essential part of the truth, even a deliberate silence can constitute a lie, although this is not by any means necessarily the case. The point I'm making is the lie lives at odd with God's order for creation. Lies destroy human community. And even demanding truth from people out of the right context also destroys human community. It's back to truth in the devil's hands can reap and bring destruction. The devil can use the truth destructively and we mustn't let the devil use truth destructively. And this is why we need what uh, Bonhoeffer's getting at here. We need a wider contextual grasp of what it is to walk in truth, covenantally, to walk in truth as community, to walk in truth within community relationship structures, what's apt for different sort, a marriage has a different sort of trust set of categories than a parent with a little child. The neighbor you just say hi to across the street or over the fence. But you're not really friends. And the sort of truth you would tell to elders in your church who come acquiring pastorally with love and compassion to help. There's a point where you can open your heart and be vulnerable, a trust factor, where they're owed more than 
a 20-year-old, you've had a few comments, but yeah, she's a sister in Christ who goes to the same church. It's not the same. And if we don't grasp that, we're, uh, we're only seeing it from one angle, and it's not all the angles. What this all comes back down to, page 40, is ethics. In, in Christian ethics, as we saw in our first session, the scripture gives us laws, exhortations, or principles derived from scripture. A principle that needs to infiltrate everything we do ethically, including truth-telling, is love. All law must be governed and applied by love. Law is never to be treated as raw law. Um, you know, I desire mercy, not sacrifice. Well, I, I follow raw law. It says sacrifice. I do the sacrifice. Uh, men and cumin and, uh, and I, I tithe everything. I follow the law. But it, there's, it's not permeated with love. It, it becomes emptied out. Love does no harm to its neighbor, Paul tells us. And then justice, what we owe others as others, giving them their due and what they have a right to expect to us, from us. But what enemies and those who would hate neighbors and destroy life and and walk out of conformity with God's creation, those people, by the same token, things we don't owe them, because I'm not going to help them be God-deniers, law-breakers, and life-takers. That's it. So I'm going to ask, uh, let you ask questions if you have any. Mm-hmm. Yes, Bart. So question five from his listed online. He asked, does lying pertain only to the social setting? Or is there an ethic of lies to the self? Oh. If so, how does one avoid the pitfalls of false testimony when you're lying to yourself? Yeah, that's very good. His question had to do with what about lies to the self? Um, a lot of a lot of people who suffer a lot of misery, a lot of guilt, uh, people who suffer with uh, different sort of emotional propensities or substance addictions, uh, people who suffered great trauma in relationships or abuse can find themselves in a cycle in which trying to heal themselves or cope with deep pain uh, can also become very self-deceptive about their ability to heal themselves or be self-deceptive of the depth of their brokenness or addiction or uh, any emotional struggle, whatever it is. Um, I don't think we're called to lie to ourselves. I, um, you've noticed I'm not calling for lying. I'm calling, really what I'm calling for is walking in truth, which then requires I not use truth or allow truth to be placed in the hands of evildoers to do evil. So with respect to ourselves, it's important that we find our truth in Christ Jesus, which is a true knowledge of self with a true knowledge of God. And... God is the one who, seeing us altogether truthfully, accurately, 
to the depths of us loves us. And sometimes it can be immensely hard to love yourself for uh, your own moral failures, your own addictions, your own dispositions and personality quirks, your own failures, moral failures, and you lie to yourself. Or you get so used to being abused by another, you're credulous about all kinds of lies. I mean, I'm, I'm an old guy now, but even as a young teenager sitting in high school English class, I used to roll my eyeballs. How does a girl not see what a two-faced jerk he is? Oh, but he's so cute. Oh, you know. And it's like, no, he isn't. He's awful. Uh, but only girls believe that. Yeah, they're credulous. Um, but it's a good thing. Otherwise, no man would ever get a woman. Uh, <laughs> um, Maybe I'm taking the question too far afield, but self-deception is a form of self-abuse. Because when you're not true to what's true about you, you can't, you can't find your way through, right? Your, your life's going to be diverted or wounded or sidetracked or derailed. It's... Um, I think every sinner who comes to genuine repentance at least has some degree of self-truth. I can't, only God can. I'm a flunk, but he embraces and accepts me. I'm guilty, but he forgives. Um, enough self-awareness that I need the one outside myself to bring rescue to me. I need grace, I need forgiveness, I need mercy, I need his love. I need from him what I can't give myself. But when you're self-deceived, which is what all unbelief is, you're, you're not, at least it's, it's, you're self-deceived about your spiritual condition and your need for grace and help and forgiveness. Uh, you can't find remedy when you don't have the truth, the truth about yourself. So, I mean, I know there's deep layers to that, but um, that's a very long answer to a very important question. Yeah. Any other questions? Any more questions online? No. Well, then we're going to call it to an end. I want to thank you all for attending because it's no fun if you don't have anyone to look at and make smile once in a while and see their eyes glaze a little bit and, and try to wake them back up. It's uh, been a joy. As you can see, ethical questions, and there are just a few, uh, can have layers of depth of, of, uh, of complexity and sensitivity. And um, what we ended on is very exceptional, really, right? And yet, it also shows us a context in which uh, we need community to live truth. We need community and fellowship and trust, which comes from being truth-tellers, trust to propagate truth and living it to one another. And frankly, the Christian church, the fellowship of the church is, is harmed because we're a bit dishonest with each other. 
and we need to cultivate a trust and a fellowship in which we can show ourselves in, as more vulnerable and needy so we can pray one another on. Um, so that's an aspect that I, you know, in a way I maybe should have ventured down, but truth-telling for the covenant community, the church, is something that's vital to communion of saints and fellowship as well. Shall we pray together? Thank you, Lord, for these four evenings we've been able to spend together. We ask that you've been honored in what we sought to do. We pray that we've been fair to others and when we've uh, talked about different views. And we pray, Lord, that you'd continue to bless us as we reflect together as a Christian community on difficult topics, many topics even more difficult than the ones we've looked at. But may we be inspired to love you with our, all our hearts, to love our neighbors as ourselves, and to walk in the truth of Christ who embraces us, seeing all that's false in us, all that's wayward, and yet merciful and gracious to embrace us and call us to himself. May we know that good news, that truth in him. May you be glorified. Protect us on our homeward way for Jesus' sake. Amen. Thank you.